Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome into Power Hour. I'm Nicole Auerbach. He's Chris Benini. We're excited to be here reacting to the latest college football playoff rankings. And Chris, uh, they look very similar to last week's. Yes. Top eight are the same. Top six, top four, top two. But there is a lot to talk about. And there are some points made on that ESPN show that I think we should get into in a little bit. So no change yet. We've got a big November coming. These rankings are going to change dramatically in the next few weeks coming out of this weekend. So don't worry. The excitement is coming. That is definitely true. So we will just run through them again. The top eight remains the same. So that means it's number one, Ohio State, number two, Georgia, number three, Michigan, Florida State at number four, Oregon, Washington, Texas, Alabama. Now. The interesting thing here is, of course, Penn State is now into the top 10. So that creates a top 10 showdown this week in Happy Valley. We also saw some other teams sneak in in the back part of the rankings as well. Um, But the interesting debate that we saw in the ESPN show was certainly about the order of those one-loss teams. Chris, we talked about this a little bit last week. It was significant that Oregon is the top one-loss team. I think we both believe that they look like they could be national championship caliber team. The question is, does their resume justify them being where they are? Or should Texas be there on the strength of that win over Alabama? So what say you? I tell you what, Greg McElroy made some good points on that show that have me reconsidering Oregon sitting at number six. As he correctly pointed out, Oregon's best win is Utah a couple weeks ago. Great win. After that, it's Colorado, Washington State. You know, we are putting a lot of Oregon stock into almost beating Washington, into being two yards away from a fourth down to winning, from a field goal from sending that game into overtime. And so clearly the committee likes Oregon. We said they were one of the big winners last week, and that's the case again here, and it's exactly that. Now, now there are a lot of games still to come. Oregon still has to play uh, Oregon State. Uh, it's got some other big games coming up November as well. So these are going to change, but I don't know if Oregon should be number six, even though Greg McElroy, who made that point, yesterday tweeted that he had Oregon at number six. So I don't know if something changed, but I thought he made some good points. Yeah, I think that that is definitely one of the the eye test teams. And especially, I think, because of how we saw them play Washington, we've kind of been grouping those two teams together, anticipating partially a rematch, a potential rematch in a Pac-12 championship game, which we would love to see. But you're right. We have had, we do need to adjust some of the results early in Pac-12 play with some of the teams that have really fallen off in recent weeks. Another issue that I think is a very valid one, thanks again to Greg McElroy for bringing this up, is the inconsistency in the policy, or not really the policy, the way the policy is applied between those top teams. Resume versus eye test. So Ohio State is in that number one spot on the strength of their wins, which, by the way, shout out to Rutgers being viewed as a quality win. We had CFP chair Boo Corrigan say a top 20 defense in Rutgers. So just, again, we need to get our weekly Rutgers shout out into this uh, into this podcast. But you have that for number one. And now Georgia is starting to improve their resume now that they finally got a win over Mizzou, who stays in the top 15. Michigan doesn't have any good wins yet. Their stretch run is starting this week. And then Florida State, again, you kind of got to look at some of their wins and their opponents, like their win over Clemson. Um, you know, is is boosted actually by this win over Notre Dame last weekend. And so you have to kind of like do the transitive property on some of these. But Washington, by these committees' own rankings, has the best win in the country 
over Oregon, yet is still on the outside looking in, also got yeah. complimented for the win over USC. So this is what Boo Corrigan had to say about combining the way that he views the eye test and the resume and the way the committee views combining these two philosophies. How would you describe the way the committee evaluates and pieces together football judgment as opposed to resume when it becomes similar teams at the margins? Well, I think the key in, what, in the question, Reese, is they're not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. You know, as we look through it, and you can tell by our rankings right now with Ohio State and the big wins they've had, including last week over, you know, a top 20 defensive team in Rutgers in Georgia and the way they've played their games, big win over Missouri, um, you know, the other wins that they've had this year. Uh, Michigan, a little bit of a different schedule as you look at that, but they continue to dominate, uh, including going up 17-0, um, you know, last week against Purdue, as well as Florida State getting their wins, you know, down their two top receivers. You know, it's a mixture of the resume and kind of the football judgment as we look at it. And again, Washington's in there as well with their big win at USC. So Boo Corrigan is saying that it is a combination, and we and we know that because that's how you do rankings. You're always com you're comparing these two things. Although Chris, your rankings in particular more resume based than they are necessarily eye tests, but the committee does seem to be applying slightly different emphasis on different teams as the season goes on. Because he was explicitly asked, I mean, is Ohio State the best team in the country? And Chris, I asked you that last week. Where do you stand on that? Is Ohio State the best team in the country, or are they the team? That deserves to be number one. As I said last week, Ohio State, I don't think is the best team in the country, but they are the most deserving team in the country. Yes, even though they barely got by Rutgers, or at least had to pull away from Rutgers, trailed there in the second half. Nick Terry makes a good point in the comments. Ohio State's beaten seven teams currently with winning records. That counts for something. They've won yep. at Notre Dame. They've won against Penn State, which is a top 10 win. And I, I think it makes sense. I, I was very close this week between Georgia and Ohio State. I almost flipped them. I almost put Georgia in after the win against Missouri. The problem is Georgia still doesn't have much else to kind of lean on, especially after Florida went and lost to Arkansas. You know, it's like the, the next most impressive performance for Georgia was against Kentucky, you know, who's like, OK, but there's there's still not a lot there. Now, Georgia does have a lot coming up. They've got Ole Miss this week. They've got Tennessee. They've got a, like an okay Georgia Tech team. So like Georgia's going to get its chances, plus an SEC championship game, obviously. So between Ohio State and Georgia, I've got, I've got Ohio State number one still for now. But Georgia's got a lot more opportunities to change that, perhaps as soon as this weekend. What about you? Between Georgia and Ohio State one and two, which one would you put? Well, I was, I, this was honestly the only interesting thing that was possibly going to come out in today's rankings was whether or not this one win over Mizzou was enough to slide Georgia up because the committee was already giving Georgia a, a big benefit of the doubt last week, right? We talked about this coming in. They, at that point, had only two wins over teams that had better than 500 records, and that is one of the the metrics. Catherine B is, <laughs> she wants to clarify to our uh, everyone on the live show that Mizzou um, was considered one of the quality wins. Georgia Tech was not considered a competitive game. Catherine, when that game is close, we will come back to you. You will certainly be here in the comments section, and we will pull you on, and you will need to discuss and uh, defend Brent, your, your slander for Georgia Tech take, right now. Brent Key is taking that as as uh, bulletin board material bulletin for Georgia board Tech. Material Plus, remember, for sure. even, what, what is it, odd week Georgia Tech or even week Georgia Tech? They win, lose, win, lose, win, lose every week. It's a, it, it'll flip. Technically, it's supposed to flip to a win against Georgia. So we'll see. We'll see. It's probably not going to happen. One other thought, though, uh, Chris, as you went through the remaining games for Georgia, is Tennessee just moved up four spots for a blowout win over UConn, who has won one game. Okay, so that is setting up to be a bigger opportunity, a better uh, win, potentially, for Georgia in a couple weeks when they play that game. Um, some other, I'm, ba I'm, I'm baffled at, by the, by the way, I'm, I've been baffled oh. at Tennessee's ranking all year because they haven't done much. They lost to Florida. They beat Kentucky that like, they don't have a good win on their schedule. Their best win is UTSA. 
Like their their best performance was blowing a big lead against Alabama. And Tennessee's now all the way up to what, 14, you said? Like, I'm very surprised Tennessee has been that high. They they have been, I've had them much lower in my rankings than they've been in the polls all year. That's just yeah. they just haven't done much yet. But look, that 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 could be a top 15 win for Georgia in a couple weeks. Yeah, it, it could be. And like you look at some of the teams that slide into these polls, like First of all, shout out to Arizona. Awesome season that they are having and what Jed Fish is building. That is great to see them break in. Iowa is now in the top 25 um, I on the strength of a 10-7 win over Northwestern. So these are the teams as we look here at 21 through 25, Arizona, Iowa, Tulane, North Carolina, Kansas State. This stuff matters because the committee can sneak in some top 25 wins for teams by putting some teams in this part of the rankings. So there's always some surprises. By the way, I want to talk about Tulane being in there because one of the questions that I wrote for my athletic piece setting up this week's rankings was, what was the group of five race going to look like? Because we saw Air Force lose to Army this week. Tulane remains in the poll. We weren't sure. Chris, you and I had both talked about this. Of a yeah, ugly game against East Carolina, who has one win on the Very season. Hard. Tulane, Tulane stays. Tulane is in the poll. They they inch up slightly. So with JMU ineligible, even though they're trying to petition the NCAA to make them eligible, this feels like it's Tulane's spot to lose in the New Year's Six Bowl for the group of five champion spot. Yes, it is. And it, it's going to be tough. Like, they've got UTSA in a couple of weeks, and UTSA has figured things out. Frank Harris is back healthy. That is going to be a very uh, difficult game for Tulane. And, and if they get through that to the AAC Championship, you've got Memphis, you've got SMU, UTSA again, perhaps. Like, Tulane's going to have to earn it if it gets there. It, it's not going to just waltz its way into the New Year's Six. So there are some big games coming up for Tulane. We don't know if JMU could pop in. They're not eligible for the rankings. Like, like if that changes, then maybe JMU pops in. I we, we don't know how that's going to go. Something to monitor as well as, as, as it pertains to the group of five. We don't know how far out Fresno State is, Air Force is, Liberty is. I had Liberty at 25 this week. So we don't know how far Tulane is from everybody else. But because Tulane still has UTSA and a conference championship game against a good opponent, I think it's Tulane's spot to lose. I will also uh, use a quote from Boo Corrigan on the ESPN show that was in an answer about Michigan because Michigan could potentially face discipline before the postseason. But this applies to JMU as well. He said that the selection committee is judging teams that are eligible for the postseason. Unrelated to Michigan, he said this is not a CFP selection committee issue. But with JMU, same point. They cannot be ranked because they are not eligible for the postseason, they can get into a bowl if there's not enough six and six teams, but that doesn't have to do with the CFP bowls. We're talking about a New Year's six spot. That is a CFP game, and that is what they are not eligible for. So, Chris, a couple other things I want to circle back on. Washington being outside of the top four. They beat USC. Now, I don't know if anyone's going to come out here and say, like, Washington has a CFP caliber defense, but you're undefeated. You are beating the good teams in the Pac-12, a conference that we think is really strong, really deep this year. Michael Penix Jr. had some Heisman, at least one Heisman moment in this game as well, but this is a high-powered offense, best win in the country, and they're still not in the top four. Is that surprising? Yes. I had Washington out at five last week. I moved them up to four this week because they went and beat USC on the road. Well, Michigan, which I had at four, the committee has at three, uh, just beat a Purdue team that's nothing. So, like, Washington has the best win in the country. They are undefeated, yet they are still outside the top four, and they still have to play Utah at Oregon State and then Washington State in a big rivalry game at the end of the season. That is a tough stretch, and and they don't have really any room for error because it feels like, as we said last week, the committee is itching to put Oregon ahead of Washington. They may think Oregon looks like the better team. Now, Washington, yes, they struggled against Arizona State a couple weeks ago. Stanford kind of, but I thought they got back on track against USC. I was willing to kind of move past that now. So I, I was surprised. I'm still surprised the committee is Michigan at three, let alone 
I mean, I didn't have them in the top four. That'll change this week when they play Penn State. But Michigan's ranking continues to be the most baffling one to me for the committee. Again, it'll work itself out, but it's weird. Well, I mean, what do you think happens if they beat Penn State on the road? I mean, do they go to one? Is that what the committee is setting them up for? Considering giving them the benefit of the doubt, putting them comfortably in the top four when they don't have any top 25 wins? We will see because we'll have to compare it to Ohio State because Ohio State beat Penn State by eight, I think it was, in a game that was not that close. Ohio State was really the favorite. But if Michigan goes into Happy Valley and blows the doors off of Penn State, which I think is possible, I think you could see Michigan jump up to number one. Yeah, I mean, again, they're number three right now with a very weak schedule, weak strength of schedule. Um, So we will see what they do there. We're already also starting to set ourselves up for a potential scenario where if Alabama wins out, we were talking about them earlier, about how you'd rank the one-loss teams. But if Alabama wins out, beats Georgia in an SEC championship game, you know, this is a team we talked about like as inevitable, right? People wrote them off after they lost to Texas, wrote them off after they really struggled with USF in a game that Jalen Milrow didn't start. How would you compare a Alabama team that runs the table to an Oregon team that runs the table? Because it feels like that is a scenario that we could be approaching if both those teams get out there. Those two teams could be the teams that we are looking at for the final spot in the top four. This is the nightmare scenario for the committee. If you have Michigan or Ohio State run the table, Florida State run the table, Georgia lose to Alabama the SEC championship and Oregon and and Texas win out because then you've got a lot of one-loss conference champions there. Do you put Texas, a one-loss Big 12 champion Texas against a over a one-loss SEC champion Alabama? I think so because Texas beat Alabama. Yeah, Yeah, so you would think they could. So so then does it come down to Alabama and Oregon for one-loss conference champions? It is tough. Now, Oregon, again, Oregon's Again, resume to this point is not that much, but they've got USC and Oregon State, and if they if they avenge their loss to Washington in the Pac-12 championship game, they will have one of the best wins in the country. And, and I think that is going to be very tough. I just can't see the committee leaving out a one-loss SEC champion at the end of the day. This is the situation the Even- committee does not want to get into. Here's the question. If you're comparing Oregon and Alabama, where they are right now, Oregon two spots ahead of Alabama, is an Oregon wins over USC, Oregon State, and Oregon worth more or less than Alabama beating Georgia? That's 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 really what it comes down to. Those are good wins you're going to add to Oregon's resume, while Alabama will have the best win if you beat Georgia. That's what it's going to come down to. I would probably personally take Oregon in that situation if you add USC, Oregon State, and Washington to Oregon's resume versus Alabama. But I'm not going to believe it until I see the committee do it. I'm not going to believe that they leave out the SEC champion, presumably leave That's, out the SEC, if that happens. It's, it's a fascinating question. And you have to compare the one losses in the context around them. It's going to be really interesting. Alex makes a great point about Louisville's loss. But again, it, it, these things don't happen in a vacuum. One loss ACC champion potentially with a win over for Florida State, who the committee is giving credit to. They didn't really hold FSU's. Yes, I agree. But again, this is an FSU team that we don't know a ton about how the committee feels for them, I would say, Chris. I know that they've been at number four both weeks. So far, all we got of them kind of in the danger zone early against Pitt was, well, they were playing without their two top receivers, pencil them in, keep them in the same spot. But... They are behind Michigan, who hasn't played anybody. Like, we're getting a little bit of mixed messaging, I think, on FSU. So it's hard to tell. Before we wrap this up, reacting to week two of the CFP rankings, want to give you guys a glance at what this would look like in a 12-team field. Um, we're going to try to have graphics about this, because I think it'll look pretty cool if you guys can see this play out. Oklahoma, I'm sorry, Ohio State, a number one, would be playing the winner of Alabama and Ole Miss as the first round game. So that would be an 8-9 game. Then we have Georgia at number two. They would be playing the winner of Texas and Penn State, which a game that would be played in Austin, which would be pretty cool. Number three, um, number three seed, okay, Florida State. This is where I get confused because they have to be conference champions. Yep. Um, 
Florida State would play the winner of Oregon-Louisville, game that would be played in Eugene. And then Washington would be number four in this setup, so they would get a bye, and they'd play the winner of Michigan-Tulane, which would be in Ann Arbor. So that would be what this would look like in a 12-team field with the six conference champions, six at-larges, and the rules that were previously agreed to for the 12 Doesn't that sound great? Yeah, we've got Ari still out here on Twitter saying he doesn't like that whole thing. The, the idea that the college football, his stance is that the college football playoff starts now because we're going into November with all these top 10 teams basically having a realistic path to get it. And he's not wrong. The problem is, wouldn't it be fun if the top 20 were in the race right now? That's what you're getting yeah. with the 12-team playoff. That's why it's going to be a lot of fun because you're going to have even more teams playing meaningful November games Ari, I'm going to be with him at the TCU Texas game on Saturday. I'm sure we're going to talk this out again, and I'm sure he's going to have his thoughts on this you're podcast saying, feed later. I'm sorry, later. you're saying that you think Ari is going to continue to argue about an argument he's made a hundred times before? That doesn't sound like we got, him. We, we got an we got an, an argument about this walking through the mall like a couple of weeks ago. Like it came out of nowhere. It went on for 20 minutes. It's a whole thing. I love Ari. He's great. Um, we do. We love Ari. Not, the, but the, yes, the debate's is, never going to end. The debate is not going to end, even though this has already been decided, Ari. It's happening next year. But the interesting thing, again, is we are talking about a lot of teams that are still alive this year because there are multiple teams in all of these Power Five conferences. We have all the parts of the region in uh, regions in the country engaged in it. This is what we wanted every single year in the CFP era, in the four-team era, and it's not always been like this. So this is an aberration. Yeah. It is a great... I think a great transition year into a 12 team playoff where we're going to have so many more teams alive yeah. as we sit here in November. It's it's partly an aberration because of so many backloaded schedules. The Pac-12 yes. backloaded its schedule. Michigan had a backloaded schedule with Penn State and Ohio State. That creates we have a lot of inflated records right now that are about to start getting popped because we've got a ridiculous amount of big games coming in November. All of those top 6 teams, top 8 have major, major matchups still to come. And that's going to be a lot of fun. They do. So as a reminder, we will be live on YouTube every single Tuesday night. Next week, it's going to be late with the conference. Uh, Champions Classic Basketball. Oh. So we're going to have everyone present. I know, I know. Prepare yourselves. It's going to be late. The first game's probably going to go into overtime. We're just going to have to deal with it. But we will be here. And then you, if you're listening to this in podcast form... We are going to go right into um, our next segment of the show, and we're going to start by talking about the top shelf, and we're going to be previewing games. All right, hey, everyone. Um, we are introducing a new segment this week. It is called Top Shelf. You guys know we love our liquor puns, but these are the best of the best, the best games, the games that intrigue us the most, and we are going to uh, quickly hit on all of them. And we're going to start with the big game in Happy Valley. Michigan travels to Penn State. Top 10 showdown thanks to the latest CFP rankings. And Michigan's first big test of the season. The preseason is over. 9-0. But here's the three games that will determine the season. They've got Penn State. Then they've got Maryland. And then Ohio State. As we're recording this, there is some uncertainty about who will coach or any Big Ten punishment. We will get to that a little bit later in the show on The Rocks. We will talk about the latest with the scandal. But I want to talk about this game itself because there's enough intrigue when you even take out everything that's happening off the field. Big test for Penn State, who has typically struggled mightily against Ohio State and Michigan. This game is at home. Drew Aller coming off his best performance of the season last week against Maryland. They got other players involved in the passing game who maybe hadn't been all season. They're coming in with some confidence. Michigan, on the other hand, coming in just after steamrolling pretty much everyone they have played. And they have been very focused despite everything that's been happening off the field. So, Chris, what are you watching for in Michigan-Penn State? So I have been feeling ever since the Penn State-Ohio State game that this game was not going to be particularly close. I, I have thought for a while that Michigan is going to steamroll Penn State here. The line is four and a half points, Michigan. It hasn't really moved. I, I had wondered if it would go one way or the other based on the Jim Harbaugh news, based on everything else. Like, it just, it hasn't really moved. And so that tells me Vegas thinks it's, going to be close, closer than, than I think. 
Penn State getting 51 points against Maryland, getting some deep plays, getting throws across the middle of the field, that's what we've been waiting to see. What we don't know if that was Penn State figuring things out or Maryland just continuing to be on this downslide that it always hits every time the calendar hits October. This is the most interesting stat to me for this game. Michigan has outscored its opponents in the third quarter 114 to nothing. Penn State in the third quarter has outscored its opponents 97 to nothing. So both of these teams, very good out of halftime. I am fascinated to see what that third quarter looks like this year because that I feel like that could decide if this is going to go heavily one way or if its game is going to be close. Penn State's defense, really like it. The thing is, J.J. McCarthy, I think, is at his best when he's throwing on the run, when he's getting pressure and getting out of pressure. We saw it against Michigan State quite a bit. This is the first test. I don't know. Can, 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 can J.J. McCarthy win them a big game or will Blake Corum and the running backs do enough to, to, to win it? We just haven't seen that much. I'm really interested to see the Michigan offense, the Penn State defense. Can they keep it close? I'm not so sure. What do you think? Well, these are two fantastic defenses and, you know, Penn State has made a living of living in their opponent's backfield. So it's going to be a really interesting test for J.J. McCarthy. What I'm kind of fixated on as we get closer to this one is we've talked a lot about Penn State and their lack of explosives in offense, right? We saw a lot of big run plays last year, but also like this has been an offense that we've seen just you throw these big 50-50 balls up. And Sean Clifford made those throws. Trace McSmorley made those throws. And they just had incredible athletes at receiver. They don't have that receiving room like they usually do. So we have wondered, what if they need explosive plays? How are they going to get them? My question for Michigan is, what about the explosives in the run game? We haven't really seen that this year. Last year, Blake Corum had much more of a heavy workload, but it was also basically like a thunder and lightning. You had Blake Corum as the Thunder and Donovan Edwards as the Lightning. And Donovan Edwards, you look at his numbers, you watch him in games, he disappears, he's not as effective. Although I will say against Purdue, they threw some balls to him. And he's a good he's a good out of the backfield as a pass catcher and running routes. So maybe you see Donovan Edwards in that way. But my point is, Blake Corum's numbers, if you look at them and if you watch highlights of him this year, it's, hey, we need a couple of yards to get a third down or a fourth down. Or we're at the goal line and we need to get in the end zone. That's how they've used Blake Corum. So again, what do these teams need to have these big explosive plays to win this game against two elite defenses and who's going to make them? That's what's going to be really interesting about this. Also, as you said, Michigan and JJ McCarthy, what if you need to go out and win this game? They have not been in a game like this at all this season. And Drew Aller, it didn't go well the first time he did in Columbus against Ohio State. But now he has that experience. And this game is at home coming off his best performance of the season. That one's going to be really, really fun to get to. This one is not as high profile, but we're going to stay in the Big Ten here. Nebraska, Maryland. Nebraska is one win away from becoming bowl eligible, which is a massive achievement and would be an incredibly successful year one for Matt Rule. Missed the opportunity to do this a week ago, by the way. Michigan State got their first win in Big Ten play. Maryland is struggling. You mentioned, Chris, that they struggle when the calendar turns to October. Usually it's actually November. It's usually November that they kind yeah, of fall October. apart and their schedule's yeah. backloaded. This year they yes. go over October as well and, and things are really falling off and they have not qualified for a bowl game yet. So this is a big opportunity for them as well. So what are what intrigues you most about Nebraska and Maryland? Yeah, my first question is why we had this game on the rundown, but I guess the reason is because both of them are trying to get off the snide and get a win to get bowl eligibility. Look, Nebraska, I thought for sure it was going to happen last week against Michigan State. They have three turnovers, lose to a Michigan State team that was spiraling. Nebraska has weird games up there in East Lansing. Maryland, they've lost four straight. They had negative 51 rushing yards against Penn State. They allowed six sacks, 12 tackles for loss. I just like... This feels like middle of the Big Ten, like who deserves to kind of be at the top of the middle. Like Maryland has kind of, I think, shown that its ceiling is kind of seven, eight win seasons because with everybody coming to the Big Ten next year, I I don't think Maryland can do much more. It's been a letdown after a good start to the year. You've got Talia. You had a lot of people coming back. And instead, it's a typical Maryland season where you start off five and oh and you lose the next four. So like it's got to be dispiriting there if you're Maryland. I'm going to, I guess... 
I guess I'll take Nebraska because I, I think they're a tougher team. And despite the Michigan State game, they are getting better. The defense is solid. Maryland can, can, seems to be spiraling. Maryland's favored by two and a half. Uh, I, I guess I think I would take Nebraska in that then. Yeah, I, I would take the Huskers too. They have won despite turning the ball over at an insane clip. It has it cost them in certain games, but they have been really resilient in responding to it, especially since Heinrich Harburg took over at quarterback. Um, Matt Rule has this program going in the right direction. Scott Ross never got those teams to a bowl game, and I do think Nebraska is going to go bowling. And I do think that they are going to go bowling this weekend. So we will watch that one as well. Let's go to Ole Miss, Georgia. This is a game that we have been looking forward to now for a while. It's going to be a top 10 showdown. Ole Miss only loss on the season was to Alabama. This is the meat of Georgia's schedule. They survived Mizzou a week ago. And here they go against an Ole Miss offense that can beat you in different ways. Big opportunity for Lane Kiffin and company, although Georgia is favored by 10 and a half points. It feels a little bit big because I think Ole Miss can keep it close. What are you watching for in this one, Chris? I want to know if Ole Miss can really score. I, I mean, this is an offense that we know has a lot of weapons, but they only put up 10 points against Alabama. And we haven't seen Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss against a Kirby Smart Georgia team before. So like, he knows what the deal is. Can they move the ball? Can Quin Can Quinshawn Judkins run the ball on Georgia, which is not a great running defense this year compared to what it has been. Georgia's 47th in yards per carry allowed. They were number three last year. Judkins, one of the best running backs in the country, very physical. Jackson Dart can run the ball at a quarterback spot as well. We saw Auburn be able to move the ball a bit on Georgia with quarterback run game. So I want to see if one, Ole Miss can run the ball, and two, can Georgia protect the quarterback? Georgia's allowing only one sack per game, but Ole Miss had three last week. Mississippi is sixth in the country, 3.44 sacks per game. They get in the backfield. Can they get pressure on Carson Beck? Missouri did, and it rattled him a little bit. So I want to see if if Ole Miss can run the ball and get to, to the quarterback. If you want to have a chance to win this game, that's what it's going to come down to. This isn't the same Georgia that we've seen the last couple of years in the way that they beat teams. They're not as dominant. They've been in close games and they've come out victorious. Um, but what happens again with a team that has the different weapons like a, a Ole Miss has? What did Ole Miss learn from that game against Alabama where we felt like they were primed for a big opportunity? They were catching Alabama at probably the lowest point of their season, and they lost that game. So that one's going to be fun. Again, this is part of the most challenging stretch of the season for Georgia as well. Some of these teams are ranked a lot higher than we necessarily thought that they would be earlier in the year. I don't think we would have said Mizzou into Ole Miss was the toughest two weeks of their season, but that's where we are for Georgia. So we'll learn a lot about them this uh, week. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take Georgia, by the way. Ten and a half, I think I would still take Georgia. What do you think? I think I'm going to take Georgia too. I I went with Lane and his Taylor Swift lyrics the week that he was playing Alabama, and that did not go well for me. So I he does not, also he, take Georgia. They don't win. They don't win the big games against the best opponents. They still don't do it, and, and so I think Georgia. Last game we're going to preview here for the top shelf segment: Oregon USC. This is going to be our first look at USC without Alex Grinch. I feel like we've talked about him almost every single week on this show and about the defensive struggles at USC. We saw Caleb Williams very emotional after losing to Washington. He's done everything he possibly can. And this is a defense that just gets shredded week over week. So Lincoln Riley finally makes change. Alex Grinch is out. Two co-defensive coordinators for the rest of the year. And this is an Oregon team that's really balanced. We really like watching them. Um, the defense seems very physical and tough. I believe that this is a big line. This is, or I assume this is Oregon favored by six yes. and a half points against USC. I would still probably take the ducks because that's how low I am on USC's defense, but maybe there'll be a jolt by making a change to, uh, the coordinator position mid season, but I just don't think they have the pieces and they're not fundamentally sound. They miss tackles or the wrong place. So as, as much as I enjoy watching Caleb Williams and company, I think we are watching last year's Heisman winner and someone who is almost assuredly going to be a finalist this year in Bo Nix. 
Yeah, Oregon is going to win this game comfortably, but 16 and a half is a lot. However, I, I think I think a big reason for this, Oregon leads the country in rushing. 6.3 yards per carry, best number in the country for several years that the team has done that. USC's run defense, 115th in the country in yards per carry allowed, 4.8. One of the craziest stats I've ever seen in a game came last week between Washington and USC when Dylan Johnson had 199 rushing yards before contact. That was nuts. Ari made the comment on the Sunday. Ari made the comment on the Sunday pod that it felt like USC's defense was going backwards every time the ball snapped. And it was just remarkable. Oregon is going to run all over this USC defense in this game. And is it enough to cover 16 and a half? I don't know, because I think Caleb Williams is going to be able to score a lot of points. I I I think I'm going to take Oregon giving a lot of points up, but it's close. A, a coordinator change at this point in the season is not going to fix anything. It's really Oregon's going to be able to do whatever it wants offensively. And I think it's going to be Oregon's going to score at least probably 45 points in this game. The question is, can USC get to 35? You know, that's the question. Yeah. We'll see. So those are the games of the week for us. We're going to be doing this from here on out. Top shelf. These are, they may not all be the best games of the week, but they will be the best games of the week and the most intriguing games of the week to us here at Power Hour. Let's transition over into our happy hour segment. This is when we talk about things that bring us joy, that we're excited about, that we just think deserve just a little bit of extra shine. Now, here's one that's a little bit bittersweet, but we are going to focus on the positives here. And this is about James Madison. On Tuesday, uh, JMU sent out a copy of the letter that they submitted to the NCAA Division I Board of Directors. They are advocating for themselves. They want to be eligible to compete in a bowl game. And they don't want to just be as a backup if there are not enough six and six teams. They want to be considered for the postseason right now so that they can go to the Sun Belt and say, hey, put us in the conference championship game. And if we win, we should be the best group of five conference champion. And we think we can play for a New Year's Six Bowl. They're in the second year of their transition from FCS to FBS, which is why they are ineligible for the postseason. But they are trying to push. They are basically asking to be the exception to the rule, Chris. So they're having a great season, which is why they are in the happy hour. And they are hoping to have an even greater season by having greater opportunities in the postseason. But JMU is 9-0, and a lot of fun to watch, really good defensively, uh, and they're hoping to dream bigger at the end of the year. Yeah, I couldn't decide if I want to put this in happy hour or on the rocks, um, but I figured James Madison being 9-0 and and ranked one spot ahead of Notre Dame in the AP and Coaches Bowls was a reason for them to celebrate. On top of that, they beat Michigan State in basketball, Uh, on Monday night. So good time to be a James Madison fan. You know, I'm, I'm of, I have mixed feelings on whether or not James Madison should, should uh, get this waiver. I I, I lean toward yes, because it is a unique situation. So it's been since about 2000, since they made it a two year transition process. And throughout all that time, every team has spent the first year of a transition in FCS, second year in FBS, all those second year teams can make a bowl game only if there aren't enough six and six. James Madison spent that first year as an FBS team last year. The Sun Belt helped them out, brought them into the conference because they were able to get enough non-conference home games. They go eight and three. They actually won the Sun Belt East. They just weren't eligible for the championship game. James Madison is saying, look, we are 17 and three since we moved up to FBS. We already have budgets and infrastructure and amenities for our athletes already in place at the FBS level. Clearly. We feel like we should get the waiver. Now, the question is, look, if they're 6-3 and three instead of 9-0, and oh, are they still doing this? It was asked to athletic director Jeff Bourne on Tuesday, and he was like, you know, that's a good question, but we're winning at such a level that we feel like this should be talked about. Because the other thing, Jacksonville State is in the same position as James Madison. They're a second-year transitioning team. They are 7-3. and three. They will only make a bowl game if there are not enough 6-6 six and six teams. Jacksonville State is not going to uh, be in the New Year's Six conversation. So it, it is it is tough. I don't know which way this is going to happen. James Madison did not know which way this was going to go. I'm skeptical the NCAA will make a change like this late in the season, 
I think the American would be really pissed off. I think Tulane would be mad. I think some Sunbelt teams might be mad, and rightfully so. Uh, so I, I don't know. But James Madison is pushing the boundaries of what we thought was possible with FCS to FBS movements, and good for them. However, tough news earlier this week, Jalen Green, 15.5 sacks this year, leading the country, is out for the rest of the season. But other than that, it's been a very good week for James Madison. One other quick happy hour topic, which is genuinely actually a happy topic, is Oklahoma State won the last bedlam. They won the last bedlam as Oklahoma's time in the Big 12 is ending. They're going to the SEC. You were there. You followed the goalposts as they went off into the night. So tell me about how joyous this was for the Cowboys and the fact that now, very possible that they'll be in Dallas playing for a Big 12 championship. Well, we'll see. They, they have a path, and they have a, they have they have the most favorable path you could have because they have UCF, Houston, BYU the rest of the way, and the newcomers to the conference have done very poorly. However, Oklahoma State has a history of upsetting teams and then losing to unranked teams, so they gotta they gotta close it out here. That is very possible. But Bedlam, man, what a freaking scene! The second I got into Stillwater, I lost phone service, and I did not have phone service unless I was in the press box and on the press box Wi-Fi. And I talked to a friend who goes to games there all the time. And he said, normally he can sit in the crowd and stream a game on his phone. He had no phone service either. That's how packed Stillwater was. The student section had to be closed off a half hour before the game because it was already too full. Ticket prices for this were higher than they've ever been because it's sad. It's the last one, you know, like Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. These two teams have played for 119 years. And we knew before the game, we talked to some fans and they said, if we win the game, we're tearing down the goalpost and we're taking them to the data pond. So when the game ended and the crowd stormed the field, kind of had a feeling that that's where they were going to go. A lot of fun, really happy with what I wrote coming out of the game. And, you know, like the team that's been on the downside of a rivalry so often that the fact that they get the last laugh is some nice solace as it goes away. You know, they've lost 91 times to Oklahoma to do this, to, to win it, the last one, to win at home. It's a great way. You kind of feel good for the teams to kind of get slighted in realignment. Uh, and we've got more of those games coming up this year. So shout out Oklahoma State. Shout out Mike Gundy, who's done a tremendous job. Remember, this team was blown out by South Alabama earlier this year. They have turned things around. Uh, continue to just do a really good job there. All right, it is time to go on the rocks. We always go to where the friction is somewhere in the sport. Feels like we've been talking about this story for half the season because it feels like every day is a week or a year in this world. But Michigan, we are recording this on Tuesday night. So if you happen to be listening to this after the Big Ten does issue punishment or there's legal action taken by Michigan against the Big Ten, we apologize. But those are possibilities that could happen. The earliest we're expecting some resolution here is Wednesday. So you might be listening to this as that is unfolding. But Chris, there is more unfolding, more drama continues to fall out um, a lot since we last discussed this. But obviously, the Until Saturday feed has been all over this. Connor Stallions resigned on Friday. Michigan goes out and beats Purdue this weekend after Ryan Walters, Purdue's head coach, comes out and says, hey, these aren't allegations. We have video proof of people in the seats that Connor Stallions paid for, videotaping our sideline, getting our signals. So it's kind of the first game and the first opponent for Michigan amid all of the fury. The Big Ten coaches are upset. The ADs are upset. They have been pushing first-year commissioner Tony Petiti to do something. And he has had to weigh what to do, what is the right type of punishment. Should he be able to do something under the sportsmanship policy for the conference? And there's just been a lot swirling around. And in the last 24 hours, we've also learned about some other efforts of sharing signals legally obtained between other Big Ten opponents. Uh, Michigan has submitted documents to the Big Ten and the NCAA showing proof that they say that Rutgers and Ohio State shared Michigan signals with Purdue ahead of the Big Ten championship game in 2022 when Purdue and Michigan played. Uh, some of the reaction that I've had in conversations to folks around the conference is that this is Michigan deflecting and trying to equate 
legally obtained information with what Connor Stallions is alleged to have done. But that's where we are. Michigan is waiting and also trying to push back. We had a letter that has been leaked from Michigan President Santa Ono explaining Michigan's viewpoint here, that they believe that there is due process that needs to play out and that the Big Ten should not punish anyone or attempt to punish anyone at Michigan until all of the facts have come out with the NCAA investigation. The ADs and the coaches are saying, hey, you already have enough proof that this happened, that there was an NCAA violation that occurred, that Connor Stallions was buying tickets to illegally advance scout Michigan opponents. So we'll see if Tony Petiti ends up acting, but that would be the window. They would be saying, hey, we know this piece happened. We don't know who else was involved or how Connor Stallions paid for these tickets. That can be worked out later, but this is an issue of competitive fairness as the season is unfolding in real time, it's unprecedented. And Tony Patini would be taking an action that would become a precedent really in something like this. So Chris, I tried to recap all of it as quickly as I possibly could, but there are so many layers to this story. So I want to get your thoughts on where we are right now as Michigan is bracing and waiting for potential punishment from the Big Ten Conference. Yes, Michigan is trying to divert and muddy the waters in a way that convinces Tony Petiti, the Big Ten, not to hand down punishment and to only leave it to the NCAA. And you know what? That's what Michigan should be doing because that's what they're fighting for. Everyone's fighting against them. They're fighting back. That's how this works out. It is different what these uh, other teams have allegedly done. No, like The issue with Connor Stallions, again, is that he did things that are clearly against NCAA rules. Like, that is very much out there. By the way, we did, I don't know if you mentioned it, Central Michigan, still not commenting on who that mystery person was on the sideline. They are now working with the NCAA, too. I think you can infer some information mm-hmm. from that by what is not being said. Mm-hmm. So how much proof does the Big Ten have that, the, that Michigan committed NCAA violations? And can it act on that? That is the question. Because all these other things are not against NCAA rules. Now, you could argue they're against sportsmanship. And that's what the Big Ten punishment would be, a violation of sportsmanship clauses. So Michigan's trying to say, like, look, look at all these other teams doing unsportsmanlike things, even if they are legal, to convince the Big Ten not to do anything. Michigan's also threatening to possibly sue, get an injunction, involve the courts, whatever, to to keep Jim Harbaugh on the sideline. It's just wild that the Big Ten has devolved into uh this situation and it's a lot on tony petiti you're not either no matter what you do someone's not going to be happy and so we'll see if something happens it's not an enviable position for him but the facts on the ground haven't changed all that's changed is michigan's trying to say like look other teams are doing unsportsmanlike things as well you can't punish us for that even if what they did was against ncaa rules so right. that's the world there, turns. The, the, yes. Um, and some of the argument on the Michigan side all along has been, well, everybody steals signs. And then the pushback is, but not everyone was illegally going to opponents' games to videotape the signs. And that's the part that is against NCAA rules. So, you know, we've seen like sign sheets get circulated. We've seen... Uh, coaches and players on a sideline like frantically gesturing because they know what the play call is from the opponent reacting all of that can be perfectly legal as long as the information was obtained in legal ways that's what is at question here with michigan because if you are illegally advanced scouting and not getting these signs off of tv copies all 22 all of these other methods then you are breaking NCAA rules. So that's the part, again, that I think we just constantly need to reinforce because there are legal ways to sign seal and people do believe in that. Like certain coaches really believe in that and believe that it gives them an advantage. Again, the question of what is under the sportsmanship policy for the Big Ten? Can the commissioner suspend a head coach indefinitely beyond that two-game threshold, which is spelled out in the policy? of what he could do without um, an appeal. There are just a lot of questions. And I think what's important to keep in mind here, two things. NCAA has moved away from punishments 
involving players when the players were not involved in the rule breaking. So, you know, without, you know, like Tennessee, there were a lot of egregious violations occurred. They did not get a postseason ban. A lot of adults were punished. Uh, there was a you know hefty fine that was levied against Tennessee. But think about that as you think about what the Big Ten could do. Maybe they're more apt to punish the adults in the room, a Jim Harbaugh, let's say, for rule breaking that happened under him. Even if he didn't know directly what Connor Stallions was doing, you're saying, hey, it's an institutional thing. You were not in control of the institution or the culture or whatever, right? There was rule breaking that happened under you. And the NCAA holds head coaches accountable, whether they knew or didn't know about what happens. So would the Big Ten reflect that, kind of mirror that policy into action that they might take against Michigan? We'll see. And again, apologies to anyone who's listening uh, who already knows what the Big Ten is doing or if there is legal action in response by Michigan. But it is a very uncomfortable situation in the conference. And as you mentioned, Chris, like there's no win here for Tony Petiti because either you're be dealing with 13 incredibly frustrated schools, especially if Michigan wins out and represents the Big Ten in the college football playoff or wins a Big Ten championship and, you know, is there with all the confetti. Or you have a Michigan program that is also furious at the conference for what they would believe would be overstepping its bounds or enacting punishment before a full investigation is complete. So there is no good outcome, I don't think, here for yeah. the commissioner. There, there was some good insight. So the story that you, Austin, and Bruce did that went up Tuesday night uh, with some details on, on the documents that were put together by Ohio State Rutgers and Purdue about Michigan signals. And, and you also talked to another Big Ten staffer who steals signs legally, and, and he said it took him 10 to 12 hours per week to decode it yeah. off of TV and other film. Like this is a lot of work. Like when you have a million staffers on your staff, these are the kinds of things that they do. So it makes you wonder, why did why did Connor Stallions feel like he had to go to the extent that he did allegedly of filming and doing all these other things when it's clearly something that a lot of people already do? Why did they have to go that extra step? That's what we don't know. That yep. said, this scandal remains incredibly funny. Like it just hilarious the the, the 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 way things are happening the bickering going back and forth the selective leaks and various things and i want to jump on real quick the signals the documents that we got out the ex the, the the descriptions of some of these signals and i want to know if you had any favorites there were there were things such as salt shoulder i don't know what quite that is there's rain down there's fangs there's owl eyes something called ricky bobby i don't know what ricky bobby was my favorite uh, Twos down. I guess would that be it? Probably sh kind of shake it before you bake Shaking it. That type of thing. Or shake. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Shake it and then you bake it like they were doing it in the movie. That that could be it. But my favorite one. It's a run play. It's twos down with a push and then a double Cena. And I don't know what a double Cena is because if there's an opportunity for me to make a pro wrestling reference on this podcast, I'm going to do it. And the double Cena mm -hmm. could be the three fingers that John Cena does. Or it could be the, you can't see me in front of your face. I need to oh, talk to somebody to figure what out what the double scene means. I don't know. So very curious what the double scene is. Did you have a favorite uh, have Michigan signal? I I did not. But um, Owl Eyes, I think, tend, would tend to be. Uh, nothing is going to top. Uh, yeah, but nothing is going to top. And this is unrelated to, to the Big Ten or Michigan. But Jonathan Smith and the Milk the Clock signal, right? That was Jonathan Smith. Out of Oregon what, State. what was he doing? I, I don't think I saw mm -hmm. this. What was it? He was mil he was milking himself. What, what, this was not a milking himself. Okay. No. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think I missed mm -hmm. this because we we know Northwestern has this wasn't. Yeah, this do it. Wasn't, uh, yeah, um, don't don't do it. But yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna. Do, I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, just, no, no like North, so like uh, Northwestern. Yeah, this was not like an actual. No, this was just like to milk the clock at the end of the game. Like this was just his reminder to the team. And he it was he should just have one done of the what Northwestern thing. did. He should have done the Northwestern kicker celebration or the punter kicker. I don't remember which one it was, but they do like the milk and the, the cow one. That makes a lot more sense than the one you just that, I completely make, missed that one makes a lot more sense. Jonathan Smith had to <laughs> apologize for this one. So I think that that was part of I it. Can't but believe no, I can't believe I missed this. This scandal um, at Michigan continues to unfold. You can still... You can find the latest here on the Until Saturday feed and at theathletic.com. 
I'm sure there will be 10 different twists and turns by the time we chat about this next, Chris. But we do need to wrap things up here because uh, we've covered a lot of ground. But we always end with the last call. And today's last call is sponsored by Invesco QQQ. This story of innovation and change is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Chris, you dove into the innovation and change that is being explored and worked on by those trying to implement helmet communication or tablets or wristbands, but basically bringing technology into play calling. And maybe we won't need some of those signs and those hand signals and everything that is chaotic on the sidelines that we've learned so much about with the Michigan story. So tell us a little bit about where the technology comes from and how it works. Yeah, this is coincidentally not related to the Michigan sign ceiling scandal, although it basically could solve it. Uh, back in the summer, the Rules Committee approved the use of uh, communication devices for bowl games, non-playoff bowl games. It could be a helmet communication. It could be a wristband, a wearable or whatever. Uh, that was approved because the Big Ten said, hey, we want to use this in our games along with sideline video and tablets. Rules Committee said, no, but we're going to do this bowl experiment. Uh, so that that has been going on for a while. But however, within the last week or two, the Rules Committee has also approved the use of sideline, basically tablets for in-game video review. And this is that college football is so far behind in technology. I don't think people realize that. It's not just the NFL where they have helmet communication and they have sideline tablets. High school football uses tablets on the sideline. College baseball, college softball use communication devices. College football has been very far behind this. So they're finally getting toward it now with bowl games, multiple options. There's helmet communication. Uh, GCS is one of the companies. Coachcom is another company. Coachcom does the headsets for almost all of the coaches you see. And they've tested that out in a game. They tested it in the Grambling Southern game in 2021. It went well. You may see teams using helmet communication. However, the liability and warranty kind of remains uh, an, an uncertainty. The other option is wearables, which is a wristband or a watch or something just kind of flaps on your belt. And a lot of teams use this in practice already. A go route is a team is a company that uses a lot of this. Liberty uses it, Auburn, Washington. And it's often used with scout teams when you have to learn new plays every week because you're running the opponent's defense. Uh, they can get the new play that they need to run very quickly. Jamie Chadwell, the coach at Liberty, tell me we get a lot more reps and a lot more quality reps because we have this on our scout team. So these are the type of things you're going to see in bowl games. Uh, it is required that both teams agree on what they're using uh, in terms of whether it's helmet, wristband, sideline tech, whatever. You can basically do whatever you want. Both teams just got to agree that it's cool. So we'll see. It's to be determined if they agree to it or not. So there could be some big changes coming. It, it is very timely, though, as, as we've been talking about sign stealing and things that don't come into play in the NFL in the same way, right? Because you have that direct communication from the sideline to your quarterback or to a defender who can communicate with the rest of the team. So it sounds great. Why hasn't this already happened? Well, uh, cost is one hurdle uh, that, that's been a bit for a while. Not as much now as it used to be. Uh, the other is liability and the warranty. Like I said, if you put a third-party device in a helmet, some of the helmet companies are saying, hey, we're not going to be liable if somebody gets sued for a head injury. So that's a hurdle. The other part is coaches actually have not pushed for this. Despite what they were saying in response to the Michigan news, everybody's saying we need to do this. The reality is I talked to coaches in every Power 5 conference last year None of them said it was a priority. Uh, so now it is a priority. Now it might actually happen. Uh, we'll see. Again, both teams are going to have to agree on whatever they use in the game. Would not be surprised if you have a lot of teams that say, no, nah, we don't want to do it. Because look, there are a lot of teams that steal signs and they want to keep stealing signs. And if you have technology that makes it harder, they may not want to do it. But again, high school football is, is close to using this stuff. College baseball, college softball, everybody's using it. This technology is becoming so available, so much cheaper. College football needs to adapt. It needs to catch up with the times and start acting like every other sport does. Uh, and I suspect we're probably heading down that road. It could be, if it goes well in the bowl trial, if, if they get enough data and it goes well, it could be approved for as soon as next season. You start to see it more widespread. 
So, I mean, again, this sounds like a great step. This is something I've talked to a lot of different coaches about in the last month or so about how this works. I, I'm curious, Chris, if there would be a benefit for quarterbacks who want to go to the NFL. Like, is there an adjustment period? The fact that they don't use this now and they have it in the NFL, like, wouldn't there be a benefit to preparing the way that you would for the next level for a quarterback? Yeah, it's a lot easier in the NFL. And, and, and actually, Matt Rule made a comment a couple weeks ago, basically like, in the NFL, you can send a quarterback to the line with three different plays as options, and then they adjust to it from there. Um, what, one thing that is different about the NFL, though, they still huddle. If you have a helmet communication and a quarterback, you're still going to have to signal some stuff in. That's why some people think the wearable technology could be easier to use and more widespread. You can give it to all the skill players if you want, you know, like that, that type of stuff. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see, but like that, and especially the sideline technology, the tablets, the photos, the videos you can put on there, that's very important for quarterbacks. Uh, and it's, it's one reason why NFL quarterbacks develop a lot better than you've seen in college. Yeah, no, it's it's super interesting. And I'm just going to piggyback on your last call because I have been convinced in the last month that this is the future. It's really the present in a lot of other places. And this is something that has been in effect in the NFL for since 1994. So this is something that college should have. And I think it's a really cool and interesting wrinkle. Again, thanks to Invesco QQQ for sponsoring our last call. And that'll do it for this episode of Power Hour. As a reminder, we will be live reacting to the CFP rankings next Tuesday night. They will be later than usual because of the Champions Classic. But Chris and I'll be here and we'll be we'll be here for the rest of the Power Hour episode running through everything that's going on in college football. For Chris Manini, I'm Nicole Auerbach. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.